He's still on the throne, folks. He's still in control. Amen? All right. So look at your um, e-bulletin and all the information that is there. And so glad that, again, you're here this morning. We do have a Bible study, so Matthew chapter 16, as we continue our verse-by-verse study in Matthew. If you're visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse here at Calvary Chapel. Wednesday, we're in the book of Ezekiel. You don't want to miss that. It's online uh, teaching. We're doing online only on Wednesday nights right now. And so join us for that study in Ezekiel, incredible study going through Ezekiel's prophecies. And I know that you'll be blessed and benefit at 7 o'clock on Wednesday here uh, as we we put that on the website and then Facebook Live as well, Calvary Chapel Greeley. So join us for that. I know you'll be blessed and and just encouraged as we look at Ezekiel's prophecies. But this morning uh, we have Matthew chapter 16. We've gone as far as verse 13. And we do read, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Father, we do pray this morning that as we look at this text, it's a a text that a lot of us are very familiar with. But Lord, you have something for us today. And as we read the confession of Peter, as we see Jesus declaring that he's going to go to Jerusalem to die for sinful humanity, that, Lord, that it would touch our hearts once again to remind us that we have a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that as we've gone through a year of just uncertainty, and it has more to do with, with COVID, maybe just with jobs or health or uh, health issues that we face in other areas of our lives, Lord, just um, family, relationships, whatever the case may be, that you're on the throne, and great is your faithfulness. And Lord, this morning that we can gather as your people and know that we have a living hope that comes through Jesus Christ and that you have a plan and you have promises for us and they will come to pass. I pray that we would be ones with our ears open right now and to hear from you and our hearts soft before you to receive the word of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus takes his disciples and they go up to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount Hermon. It's way up in the northern part of the country. It's very beautiful. It's actually at the headwaters of the Jordan River. The Jordan River that flows into the Sea of Galilee and then flows out of the Sea of Galilee down to the lowest point on the face of the earth to the Dead Sea. But it all begins here at the base of Mount Hermon. There's actually three forks of the Jordan River. And when we go to Israel, we go to Caesarea Philippi here that is spoken of. There at the base of Mount Hermon, that is probably the place where we'll read next week where Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. But there's a large rock outcrop that is there. And underneath that rock outcrop is the water that comes out with the beginning of the Jordan River. And it's very beautiful. There's trees that are there. It's mountainous up in that area. It reminds you a lot of Colorado. And as you look at the stream, there's trout that's in the stream, rainbow trout. And there's hiking trails all around. So Jesus is there, up there, in the northernmost part of the country. And it was a place called Caesarea Philippi, but it also had the ancient name 
Panias. And Banias was named after the Greek god Pan. And it was a place where there was a lot of idols that were there. The p- people had, through history, gone there to worship Roman and Greek gods. And when you go there today, you see the excavations that they've done and all these altars and, and these idols that they had that are lined up there. And then next to it, there's kind of this cave. And the cave was the place where they would do sacrifices for those idols. And the Jews called it the mouth of hell. Now keep that in mind as we see Jesus here. He's up at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples with the backdrop of all those Greek and and Roman gods, those idols that are there, that cave there that they would refer to as the mouth of hell. Jesus is going to make reference, as many of you know, about his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as he's there, he's standing in the backdrop of all these pagan idols and shrines, and he asks a very important question. He says, who do men say that I am? And in verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So there were different thoughts that were floating around Israel concerning who Jesus was. Some say you're John the Baptist. Now we saw in Matthew chapter 14 that that's what Herod the Tetrarch thought, that, that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the grave. There are others that were suggesting that, well, you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He's working miracles. Elijah was a miracle worker, so maybe he's Elijah. Or the message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand was the message of Jesus, as we read in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. And then also, it's interesting that they would say, some say that you're Jeremiah. Now, why would they make reference to Jeremiah? It could be because Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah uh, was one that, uh, even though he had a difficult message, again, to repent, a nation to repent and turn back to God, that he wept for the people and, and he cared for the people. And Jesus is one that he had compassion for the people and as he would preach the kingdom and the love of the Father. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Also, there was a thought that the Jews believed, many of them, that Jeremiah would come on a scene, not only with Elijah coming before the uh, terrible and dreadful day of the Lord, but right before Messiah would come on a scene, that Jeremiah would show up as well, because they believed that Jeremiah, as he, we read about him and his prophecies in the Old Testament, he's prophesying during the days where Judah would go into captivity. So they believed that Jeremiah went into the temple that he took the Ark of the Covenant, he hid it somewhere, and also the tabernacle, the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, that was there at Shiloh during the days of the judges for all those years, and he hid it somewhere. And that right before Messiah would come, that Jeremiah would show up, and that miracles would be performed, and he would display the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. So some say Jeremiah. Maybe he's one of the other prophets. Now we know today... The question gets asked, who is Jesus? And people can come up with all kinds of answers, different answers. And there's a lot of people that consider Jesus just a great moral teacher, a great religious leader. He was one that uh, was uh, a great spiritual guru. You will get all kinds of answers that people will say who Jesus is. He was a great prophet. He was a miracle worker 2,000 years ago. And so they, you know, come up with these answers similar to what the disciples are saying as he's 
with the backdrop of those idols saying, who do men say that I am? Well, you're one of the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist. And we're going to see Peter's answer here in just a little bit. But before we leave this section, I just want to quickly point out that when the disciples were saying it's one of the prophets, they were not talking about reincarnation. And the reason I mentioned that is because reincarnation is a belief that has gained some popularity with the growth of the New Age and Eastern philosophies and, and mysticism and all of that that has become more popular in our culture. And there are those that are around that they will say and they will claim that even the Bible teaches reincarnation. And what they do is they will turn to this verse and they will say, see, the disciples thought that Jesus was reincarnated when they said that he's Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah. And of course, you know what reincarnation is. It means appearing in a new body or even as a different form of life, uh, living a different life than the one you originally did. And there are those who can even give these startling accounts, these amazing stories, as they're put into a trance, you know, a hypnotic trance. And they'll go back to a previous existence, and they'll give all these details in which they were a different person. And I haven't listened to too many of them. I just, I won't do it. But uh, a few that I've heard, and have you ever noticed if you've heard it, it always seems to be somebody famous that they were. You know, I was this king, or I was this famous general, or this powerful person, or this wealthy person, or I was a queen, or I was Cleopatra, whatever it was. And people go, wow, that's amazing. And they will point those who believe in reincarnation, and they will come to us Christians, and they will point to this passage and say, see, even Jesus taught reincarnation. He believed in New Age philosophy and all of this. And there have been a few Christians that I have talked to in my years of ministry that they have been misled. And they think that the scripture supports uh, this teaching of reincarnation. And I just want to say this and be clear on this. There is absolutely nothing at all in scripture that ever supports the notion of reincarnation. And in this case, it was not a matter of the people's thinking that the old prophets had appeared in a new form. They thought it was the same old prophets back again, not in a reincarnation, but in a reappearance. Uh, they were expecting the same individuals who had lived hundreds of years before. And I do want to say this, that the whole idea of reincarnation is one of those doctrines of demons that Paul spoke of, taught by lying spirits who deceive men and make them believe that kind of thing in order to gain control over them, to deceive them. I can't think of anything more depressing than reincarnation. The Bible declares that, that you know, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. That it's appointed for man, every single one of us, to die once and then comes the judgment. Can you think of a more depressing thing than to think that we would come back as another life or another person? I mean, do you want to go through the things that we go through? Do you want to go through middle school and all of those things in life? I don't want to. I want to go home and be with the Lord. And that's the promise that we have in Scripture. 
that we're going to go home and be with him for all eternity. So I want to make that clear because sometimes people will try to throw you a curveball with, with this reincarnation in this text that we are reading. But as they responded to Jesus, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, some say you're one of the prophets, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. And then verse 15, as we read, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? It gets personal. More importantly is who do men say that I am, is who do you say that I am? And it is the most important question asked of any man or any woman. Who do you personally say that Jesus is? And every single person will have to answer that question, and how they answer that question will determine where they're going to spend eternity. Either with Jesus... As they confess, as Peter does here, we'll read in verse 16, he confesses and says that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think that most of us are familiar with Peter's confession in this story. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we confess that, we know that we have eternal life as we ask for forgiveness. Or people are going to be separated from Jesus because they reject who he is, what he did for them, the gospel message. And they will be cast into the lake of fire as they stand at the great white throne judgment. And so as we look at Peter's answer here and just read it, he doesn't say, well, I think that you're a great miracle worker. Uh, I, I think you're a great spiritual teacher or one of the prophets or a new powerful prophet. But you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Christ, which means the anointed one. Christos in the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament Messiah. Peter saying you are the anointed one, the Messiah, and then Peter acknowledges Jesus' deity as the son of the living God. You are the coming one, anointed of God. You're the son of the living God. That your name is above all other names, above all these idols here that people are coming and worshiping, all these false gods, little g. His name is above all other names. That includes Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha. Because people will come along and try to put them on the same level as Jesus. He is above them all. And we know that in Philippians chapter 2, that his name is above all other names. And every knee, whether in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you and I, we have done that. We've come and we've said, Jesus, I acknowledge that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But even at the great white throne judgment, those who have rejected Jesus Christ in their lives and will be sentenced to outer darkness, they will be forced to make that declaration. Every knee shall bow because his name is exalted above every other name. You're the promised one. You're above all the false gods here. You're the one that will crush the serpent's head. Genesis chapter 3, you're the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and declared to be the I am. You're the one that Isaiah spoke of and of Daniel spoke of that would come and set up your kingdom. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And not only is it important for us to understand who Jesus is, because there are those who will say, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, I believe Jesus was a great moral teacher. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. But who is Jesus to you? 
And they'll put Jesus on the same level as other religious leaders, that he is a way to heaven. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. They will say that as they present a different Jesus, we believe in Jesus. But they'll come along and say, well, Jesus was the brother of Lucifer. He's not eternal. He's not the Alpha and the Omega. And the Mormons say that he was the first, you know, spirit child born of God the Father and God the Mother. They present a different Jesus. It's the Jehovah Witnesses that will say that Jesus is the brother, uh, uh, or Michael the Archangel. The Mormons say he's the brother of Lucifer. So they present a different Jesus. It's important for us to understand the eternal one. God in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who humbled himself and became a man, as Paul writes, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became a man, became obedient, even obedient to the point of going to the cross, to the point of death. He died for you and for me. And it's important that not only do we have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and his divinity, his eternal uh, characteristics and his nature and his essence as declared Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He's the exact representation of the Father, and they are one. And it's important for us to present that to others, for us to tell others who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as Peter makes his confession in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, Simon, as many of you know, Simon means shifting sand, shaky sand. Simon Barjona, Bar means son of, you were Simon, son of Jonah, and that was you and me. Do you know that? Before we came to Christ? Our lives were on shaky ground, if you would, before we made that confession in our hearts that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, set upon the throne of my life. We were on shaky ground, but now we can build our lives upon the rock, Jesus Christ, upon the solid ground, in a place of strength and stability and assurance. And you were Simon, but now you're called Peter, Little stone, Petros in the Greek. And upon this rock, Petra, there's a large rock outcrop at Caesarea Philippi. And upon this rock, I will build my church. It's the first time that we see here in the New Testament that the word church is found. Upon the rock of your confession, Peter, you see there are those who will come along and say that Peter, upon Peter, that Jesus is going to build his church. The church isn't built upon any man. It's built upon him, Jesus. And those who come along confess that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter, you have stability now in your life because you know and believe and confess that uh, who I am. And you and I will have stability in the best sense, in the eternal sense, because we know and confess who Jesus is our rock, our salvation, our Savior, the Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus, or, and God was, uh, there was a reference of him being the rock. 
David wrote, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. For who is God except the Lord? Who is a rock except our God, the rock of my salvation? David writes in Psalm 28, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, that God, he is the rock. His work is perfect. And you might recall that in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that it was Jesus that said, you be the wise man that hears these sayings of mine and does them is the one who is wise in that he builds his house upon the solid rock, right? And the one who doesn't builds it upon shaky sand. And anyone who doesn't have Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're building their life on shaky ground. But we get to build our lives upon him because of the confession that we make, upon Jesus, the rock of our salvation. And his church has been built for 2,000 years. Peter, later on in his life, he would write that you and I are living stones being fitted together in this holy habitation. To those who confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it has been revealed to you by my father, Peter, who I am personally. And in verse 19, he continues to tell Peter, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now there's been, verse 19, all kinds of different misunderstandings of what this means. Some people say, what does this mean? That Peter has the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. When Jesus says, Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of God, from that there are those who have said that Peter is there, and, and you know, you have the jokes, and you see Hollywood has the scenes, and there are people that believe that when we close our eyes and when we breathe our last, that we're going to go to heaven, and there are the pearly gates, and there's Peter sitting at a big desk, right? And he's got a big book. Let me check and see if you're in. You know, nope, you're not in the book. You're going to have to go somewhere else. Or why should, you know, I let you in? We don't have, Peter's not the judge. He's not determining who's going to be in and who gets to, you know, go to heaven or not go to heaven. That we will all stand before the Bema reward seat of Christ, not the Bema reward seat of Peter. That when we close our eyes and breathe our last, as Paul writes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's the judge. And so Peter here is it's told the whole idea that you're going to have the keys of the kingdom. The idea is not that Peter has the authority to admit people to heaven, but a key in Scripture was a sign of authority. Keys were a big deal. People didn't have keys like we do today. It symbolized you had some authority. But what authority? What authority when, when you hear you know, the faith teacher on TV, and he's all excited, and he's going, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And I rebuke you, and I claim this, and I name that. And it's going to be bound in heaven. And I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, ooh, you know, this guy's powerful. He has real authority. Listen, Peter would open up the kingdom on the day of Pentecost when the church was born. And he preached the gospel and 3,000 got saved. He opened up the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 as he went to Caesarea. Not Caesarea Philippi, 
But Caesarea, that seacoast city, that was a Roman city, there on the coast, he went to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a Roman centurion in his family. He gave the gospel and they got saved. And we can give that good news of the gospel to others. You have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind or loose on earth will be bound or loose in heaven. The power of binding and loosing was actually something that the Jewish rabbis of that day would use. They would give a teaching, and they would say, hey, we are bound to the teaching of that commandment because that's what the word of God declares. Or he would say, we've been loosed from that you know, obligation. The scriptures have not commanded that. So the rabbi teacher was to give understanding of the scripture to where they were bound by the things required by scripture, loosed by the things that were not required. And you and I, we're to give understanding to what the gospel says, who Jesus is, the truth of the word of God. And the language here is bind on earth what has already been established in heaven. In other words, standing on truth, who Jesus is and salvation, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And to loose, people being loosed from the gates of Hades, from sin and death, because of what Jesus has done for us, no longer in bondage to the world, no longer in bondage to death. The truth will set you free, Jesus said, free from that which is false, foolishness, that will hold you captive. Do you know people are being held captive? And as we give them truth, they're able to be free. They're able to come from the darkness into the light. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. Doesn't that seem to make sense? And as we put this all together, what was it that Jesus was saying to Peter? Peter, upon this rock, the rock of your confession, I will build my church. Peter wasn't the first pope. And upon him, you know, is going to be the church that's going to be built. The rock of your confession. There's only one church. The true church of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And everyone who makes this confession, everyone who builds their life upon the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to everyone that confesses that, I am given a key. A key of understanding and truth and the gospel. To change lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. I will use you to unlock the doors that hold people captive, loose them from the bondage of the enemy and death and hopelessness by the power of the gospel. It's so wonder that Paul would write the whole, you know, in chapter 1 of, of Romans, the whole theme of the book of Romans, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And in verse 20, he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. You got to think they're pretty excited. Peter's pretty excited, and he says, no, tell no one that, that I'm the Christ. And he's beginning to tell them. As he revealed himself to his disciples, don't reveal me yet to the world. That will come later, after his death and resurrection. But now he's speaking to them that they don't understand. And we know in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Interesting. Interesting. 
After it's revealed to the disciples that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, God's holy anointed one, then he told them about his crucifixion. He never spoke about his crucifixion without also speaking about his resurrection. And Peter would take Jesus aside and say, Lord, you know, we need to have a little talk over here. Not so. You're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter is the only one that we see here that the Lord says, get behind me, Satan, a pretty strong rebuke. You know, Peter is interesting because, he, again, he's probably feeling very good about himself. He, he's feeling, you know, I got the keys to the kingdom, you know, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and whatever you bind and loose and, and, and all of this. And, Lord, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. Get behind me, Satan. So the only one that I can remember in Scripture that he's called Satan, he had some strong words to say to the religious leaders. Next week we're going to see up on the mountain that is going to be the voice of the Father, the only person that I know in human history that heard the audible voice of the Father say, Peter, shut up, okay? <laughs> so Peter is interesting here. And as he does that, here's the thing to remember is he rebukes the Lord. Peter, having that great revelation given to him by the Father, and I suppose they're all excited. And the concept of Messiah was that he's going to usher in the kingdom. That's why he's healing all the people of sickness. That's why he's feeding the people. He's going to overthrow Rome. And that's going to continue up until he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We will see the people, Luke tells us, that the people are expecting him to usher in the kingdom immediately. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they pictured him as one that was going to immediately bring down a host of angels and usher in the kingdom. They knew the Old Testament prophecies that Messiah would do that. And now he's talking about dying and suffering at the hands of the religious leaders. The prophecies did speak about the suffering Messiah. You know, Isaiah chapter 53, like a sheep that is led to the slaughter. He is despised and rejected of man he will be numbered with the transgressors. David wrote a thousand years before this, as he spoke in Psalm 22, that they pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are out of joint. Daniel chapter 9 says that when Messiah comes, Messiah will be cut off. So Jesus is preparing them of what will come, his death, and that was very shocking to them. And they would not understand what Jesus did till after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, we're going to see in chapter 18 that as Jesus says, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, that we're just going to read, that they're talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're jockeying for position. Who's going to have the great position, you know, who's going to be on his left and on his right? Clear up until the night that Jesus would be arrested in that upper room, they came into that place arguing who's going to be the greatest. So they're learning. They're not figuring it out yet. So Peter rebukes the Lord. And I think that Peter is just expressing his feelings towards the Lord as a man who loved the Lord. That shall not happen, Lord. And Jesus had some very sharp words to say to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Because you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter didn't know the full extent of what he was saying when he said, Not so, Lord. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to die for you, Peter, for all you disciples. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. 
And then Jesus, in verse 24, said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So after Jesus speaks to his disciples about going to the cross, he now speaks to them about picking up their cross and following him. To come after me, he says, means denying self. It means that we're no longer exalt self. We no longer are centered on self. We no longer live for self. But we recognize that we are to live for him and follow him and be God-centered. We recognize our need for him. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. And what the cross does is it causes us to humble ourselves and deny ourselves. And we recognize our need to follow after him in every area of our lives. That, Lord, I'm going to pick up my cross. And you bring me to the point where I understand, Lord, that I need you. And I'm going to follow after you. And he goes on and says in verse 25, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If you exalt self, listen, this is important, just a couple more minutes. If you live for self, you're going to lose out. You're going to lose out. But to die to self-promotion and exaltation and lose your life, you're going to find your life. What does the world say to you and to me? The world says to us, people come along and say, get a life. Well, I'll tell you how to get a life. Not according to me, but what Jesus says. To get a life means that you lose it. In other words, you deny self, you humble yourself, and let him be the center of your life. And he says something very interesting. He says, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Satan will offer you the whole world. That's what he did to Jesus. He said, here are all the kingdoms of the, the world. Just bow down and worship me, and they're all yours. And Satan comes along, and he doesn't have to offer us the whole world, but he'll offer the world as much as you can take and to be successful, and that's what life is about, and that's where fulfillment is, and that's where satisfaction is, and that's what life is to be about. It's about you. Listen, I'll speak for myself. I know this, that if I focus on myself, if I exalt myself, if it's everything centered around self, that I get discouraged. And I get depressed. And I find myself in despair and hopelessness. And I know that there was a time in my life where I pursued the world when I was young. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all that. I want to pursue these things. And there's nothing wrong with doing your best at your job and, and enjoying your job and doing your best in your business, enjoying things in life. But what is the priority of your life? And the thing is that the world will offer you and give you temporary satisfaction and fulfillment, 
But there are people that are very successful. You see them on TV. I've talked to them that it seems like they have the whole world. They're wealthy. They got prestige. They got a name. They got everything. And they are miserable. They are miserable because they go through life and they realize, is this what all life has to offer? It's like Solomon, in a, you know, as he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. And here is a guy that had everything, the wealth, the intelligence, the women, the power, wore golden sandals, and he said, it's all vanity. There's nothing new. Because God created you and me to have fellowship with him. And if any of us go through life where we just live for self, and it's always about self, and everything's centered around me, in exalt self, you're going to find yourself to where you're going to be empty eventually. You might have satisfaction for a moment, for a short season, but I've talked to many in my years of ministry that as they log the years in their life, they say, is this what life is about? And I feel so empty and alone. You want to experience life the way it was meant to be lived, then live for him and allow him to work that peace and that joy and that film fulfillment and satisfaction and real purpose in your, in your heart because you're living for him and he will do more in your life than you can ever do in your own self and promoting yourself and exalting self. And Jesus says, I'm going to come with my reward. Listen, all of the applause, all of the accolades, all of the attention we get, all of everything rewards. And it's nice when we get acknowledged. It's nice when people appreciate us. It's nice when we get an award or something. But realize this, it's all going to go away. And you and I, as believers, every single one of us, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema reward seat of Christ, as believers be rewarded for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not to be judged for our sins. Jesus took that judgment on the cross. But listen, Jesus talks about, and he will continue to talk about rewards to be given that will last for all eternity. And whatever applause that we get in this world, whatever awards we get, whatever championships we win, any of those things, it will all burn up. And the Lord desires for you to be rewarded eternally. And I long to hear those words, and I long to hear those words for you. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then as Jude says, and I love that verse, it's one of my favorite verses, that he will present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. And he's going to introduce you to the Father. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you. That's our hope. And everything in this world is going to go away. You want to find your life? Then lose it. Don't just live for self because you will end up being miserable and unfulfilled. 
live for Christ. He's coming back. You might be thinking, well, I don't do much for the Lord. Can you give a cup of water to a child in Jesus' name? Jesus said, great will your reward be. Can you make a meal for somebody who's really hurting and down? Can you write a card to somebody and give them some verses and say, I'm praying for you? Can you give some kind words to people? Can you just serve practically? Some of you guys are so good with your hands. You can fix things. You can fix cars. You can be used of the Lord in very practical ways, and great is your reward, and be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Can you minister to children? Can you help with vacation Bible school? Filling up water balloons? You know, helping them? Ministering to children? Jesus, we're going to see here in just a couple weeks, he's going to say, you want to be great in the kingdom? You humble yourself as this child. And great will be our reward as we just live for him. And you know what else you'll find? That you will be satisfied and fulfilled and have real purpose in life. It is not found in living for yourself. We, I think the problem with a lot of us, and I say this very humbly, is we're just so full of ourselves. We need to empty ourselves and live for him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these truths that are given to us, that we can come and be established in them. And, Lord, I pray that we would say this day and really make it our own to say we want to live for you, Lord, because You came to give us life and life abundantly. That is the joy and the peace and the strength and the wisdom that you have for us. Lord, that we would just humble ourselves and come to you and follow you. That we wouldn't just live to please others and be exalted, but Lord, to please you and exalt you because you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I pray if there is anyone that is here in this place or listening on live stream, that you've never made that confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for my sins and rose again, that you can make that today, because he is the one that is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And you can right where you are in a simple sincerity of your heart and and believing as you confess that he is Lord. Confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It's not a church. It's not yourself. It's not a pastor. It's not trying to be religious. Religion never saved anybody. It's Jesus. Relationship. Will you make that confession? Who do you say Jesus is? And if you've never made that confession as Peter did, you can do so right now. I believe, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for me. Forgive me. And you rose again. Your name is above all other names. Every other religious leader is in the tomb, in their grave. Only you conquer sin and death. 
you rose from the grave and you're at the right hand of the Father. I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me into a kingdom that lasts forever in this new beginning. And help me to deny self and to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. For all of us, that we would go out of here not only being established in who you are, what you did for us, but to be able to declare that to others, who Jesus is and how he's brought eternal life through the cross and the resurrection. So, Lord, I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.